open in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. And if you need a Bible, um, you can just raise your hand and the ushers will bring a Bible to you so that you can follow along. There's a sound of a mighty rushing wind that filled the house and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. Colossians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul, in chapter 1, gave to us the most comprehensive description of Jesus Christ that we have in the whole Bible. His person, his position, as exalted far above all principalities and powers, as the creator of the universe, his power as the one who redeemed us by his right hand, And then he capped it off by telling us a secret, what he called a mystery. He said, the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so Paul gave to us this description of Jesus and all of who he is and all of what he's done. And as we cross into chapter 2, we begin to discover why it is that Paul went there. Why is it that he gave that description? What is his agenda, his intent in wanting us to know Jesus more fully, more closely? The outline of chapter 2 is very simple. It breaks down into basically four sections. The first three verses, the Apostle Paul gives to us his agenda, or what exactly is it that he wants? And it's what I believe is the whole reason why he wrote this letter at all, as he speaks to us there in the first three verses. Then, the conclusion of the chapter, from verses 4 all the way to 23, it's a series of three warnings, or three obstacles, or three enemies that will get in the way of you and I experiencing all that we can experience as those that are in Christ. So he gives three warnings. One is beware of corrupted men, verses 4 through 7. Then the second one is beware of legalism or religious observances or religious rituals and rites. And then the third one in verses 18 through 23 is beware of asceticism or that's just a fancy word that means an ascended appearance or a hyper spirituality. And so three things Paul is going to warn us that will keep us from experiencing the fullness of what we can. And that's what we have before us tonight in chapter two. So we begin chapter two, verse one, Paul opens and he says, for I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. After finishing this description of the person, work, and interest of Jesus Christ for us and in us, he now changes gear as he looks at them and he says, I want you to know that I have a great conflict for you. The word conflict in the Greek language, it's the word agonos, and it's where we get the English word agony. And the definition of the word in the original Greek is the 
intense anxiety that comes with any competitive struggle. That is, any struggle that presents dangers, annoyances, or obstacles in a pursuit of attaining victory. So the context of the word, the definition of the word, is a competition. And what Paul is saying to these people is that I have a competition for you. I'm in competition for you. And competition is something that all of us can relate to, especially us men. Men, we live to compete. From the moment we are born until the moment we die, we are competitive beings as part of our makeup. When we were little kids, we would compete about who, would, who could run the fastest or who would be the most popular or who was, you know, maybe the, the best looking of the bunch or who would get the girl. Those are all youthful uh, competitions that you have. And then we grow a little bit and we become a little more sophisticated and the competition changes slightly. You know, then it's, you know, now it's not our competitiveness, but now we watch other people compete and we compete over other people's competition as we sign up for fantasy football and, you know, watch sports on TV and, you know, bet on horses. And, you know, it's that competitive drive that we have. We are competitive concerning our careers and our business and our reputation. And, 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 and there's just this whole competitiveness. You know, who has the best toys? And then you get a little bit older in us men. Then we compete about who has the most, you know, green grass in the neighborhood. You know, who, who has greener grass? And, and now it's who has a better golf game? Or a better stroke with a nine iron, you know, uphill and into the wind, you know, and, and now it's golf. And then a little bit later it becomes shuffleboard. Who, who can land the disc right in the 10 square in the front, you know, and, and now it's shuffleboard and, you know, and it's still a little element of who has the most toys, you know, in there somewhere. But, but then, then when a man finally comes to that point, when he gets to that, that point in his life where he can no longer compete, he dies. Because that's us. We just compete until the day we die. And the Apostle Paul was no different. Only his competition was not who would be the greatest athlete or who would have the best lawn or even the best reputation. But rather the competition that Paul was passionate about and that he clung to and took seriously was the spiritual health of God's people. Paul felt like he was in a competition fighting for the spiritual well-being and health for God's people. Now, any competition that, pers- that, you know, that a person would partake in has a prize or a crown. There's something to be attained, whether it's bragging rights or a medal or a crown or something. We wouldn't compete unless there was something that we were trying to attain. So if Paul is saying that he's in a competition for these people, then what is the nature of that competition? He wants three things for them, and he tells... And by the way, he's not just speaking this for them, it's for us too, because he says that the conflict is for the Colossians, and also them at Laodicea, which was another church in the same vicinity or area as Colossae, and also for as many as had not seen his face in the flesh. And that's you and I. 
So Paul's conflict was for every one of God's people throughout the ages. And this is what he wanted. If Paul wins the competition, what does he get? What is the prize? He tells us here in verse 2. He says this. He says, first of all, that their hearts might be comforted. That their hearts might be comforted. That is, that they would be at rest in the deepest part of their being concerning their spiritual position before the Lord. That their hearts would be comforted. Second of all, he prays, his desire, is that they would be knit together in love. Number two is that there would be a compacted unity and an unconditional love within their fellowship for one another. So rest in their hearts spiritually, compacted, unified fellowship between them, you know, together, corporately, as a body. And then the third one, my personal favorite, is this, if you look with me at the second part of verse 2 there. It says, And unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. Amen. No, no, no. I know, that, that's a mouthful, isn't it? A tongue twister in the King James. What is it that Paul is desiring for them? Let me say it in different English. He wants this for them. This is number three. That they would experience individually as God's people all of the riches associated with having a full assurance or comprehension in their understanding that is recognizing with full discernment the implications of the mystery of what it means to have Christ living in you. In other words, Paul is saying, this is what I want for you, is that you would experience all of the riches associated with having Christ in you. That was what he spent so much time setting up for in chapter 1, the mystery That no longer is Jesus just our coach or the one that tells us what to do, who's pacing there on the sidelines, hoping that we could get it right. But rather, he has made himself available to come and live inside of us. And it's a whole different experience, a whole different kingdom, a whole different thing, when no longer is Jesus just telling me what to do and it's up to me to perform it. But now Jesus is literally moving inside of me and he becomes the doer of the work. The one who performs the things that he desires to see. And it's a whole different thing. And he says that this is what I want for you. Is that you would be at rest in your hearts internally. And that you would have agape love in your fellowship corporately. And that you would experience all of the riches associated with Jesus Christ living within you practically. That's what Paul gets if he wins the conflict. But there is a conflict. He tells us there in verse 3, it says that in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. But then in verse 4, he says, and this I say. In other words, Concerning this conflict and concerning this mystery, this treasure that we have, Christ in us, he says, all of this I am saying to you. And I believe that all of this, this, what it says here, verse 4, and this I say is the whole reason why Paul is writing this letter, why it was on his heart to correspond with the Colossian Christians. 
Here it is. Lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. So what is the first enemy or the first obstacle in Paul's competition to see the Colossian Christians come to perfection? The first enemy is corrupted man. There is a twisted, perverse thing inside of fallen man. And that's, that's universal. That's male and female. It's all-inclusive. Wherein fallen man has this desire, this drive, that, that can be even perverted beyond normal. And that is to rule over and exercise authority over people. A, a desire to control and rule men. You know, we see it constantly in life and we see it throughout the Bible. It was this drive, this corruption that led the Pharisees to want to see Jesus handed over to death. They saw the multitudes were leaving their grip. They were losing control over the multitudes of people because of the faith that they were having in Christ. And so Caiaphas, the high priest, stood before the Sanhedrin and said, it is expedient that one man die and that the whole nation perish not. We've got to end this man's life, because if we don't, it's going to conquer the kingdom of now. And it was the spirit that drove them to hand Jesus over to the Romans. It was the same spirit that was in Simon the sorcerer there in Acts, who saw Peter and John come from Jerusalem, and when they laid their hands on the disciples there in the church... It says that they received the Holy Spirit, that there was something visible, some, something powerful that happened to them, a transformation, a, a, an energy, a life that came upon them as the hands of Peter and John were laid upon these men. And Simon, who it says that he exercised control over the people using magic, sleight of hand. It says that he grabbed Peter and he pulled him aside privately and he said, let me give you some money and you teach me how to lay hands on people so that they receive the Holy Ghost. I want that too. And Peter responded and said, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. I perceive that you're in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. He had a personal thing inside of him, a desire to rule over and control people. In 3 John, when John was writing to the church there, just that little short letter, he talks about this man whose name was Diotrephes. And he talked about a man who was there in the fellowship there where he was writing to. And he says, Diotrephes, he is a man who loves to have the preeminence. That is, he wants to be the center of attention, center stage, to be the one that everyone goes to and looks to and talks about and just to be the very epicenter of all that is there in that church. And he said that when I come, <laughs> we'll see what kind of power he really has. He throws people out of the church. He thinks he's the rule maker. It was that same spirit that was in Diotrephes. And it's the same spirit that Jesus speaks of in the book of Revelation in the letters to the seven churches when he talks about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. 
You may recall that if you've read through those seven letters to those seven churches, two times Jesus says, which thing I hate. One of the only times in the Bible you'll hear God say that he hates something and he hates the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And that is, Nico is lording and laiting is laity, which is the people. Lording it over the people. And Jesus says he hates it. And it's something that's in man and that can be corrupted even further and brought to an extreme. And unfortunately, the church is a ripe place for people like that to be exalted and to exercise their vice. Why? Because people like you and I, we have a natural thirst for God. We want to know God. We have a desire to learn the mysterious and invisible attributes of God. And and, and so we are opening ourselves up to something that we admit that we can't see or comprehend perfectly. And so all of a sudden, someone who wants to lord over people finds a platform, an audience, a group of people that's willing to make themselves vulnerable to the words of this teacher, of this person. And so the platform that they find is a spiritual place where people are seeking spiritual things with a sincere heart. Their agenda is to exercise and lord over them for control or to build their own reputation or their own kingdom or to fleece the flock, to, you know, enrich themselves financially. Many reasons why they would do this, but here's their method. It goes without fail. The method of those that will lord over God's flock, that will deceive you with enticing words or persuasive speech, as Paul says here, the way that they do it is with eloquence. They use persuasive words. Well, how does that work? See, when when somebody speaks well, when somebody seems like they know what they're talking about and they give an oration, It's very similar to when someone plays an instrument with skill or when a musician can kind of take control over an audience with, you know, the music that they're playing. God said that to Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 33. He said, Ezekiel, the people, they come and they sit before you and they listen to your words and they speak of you as one who can play well on an instrument. He said, but that's about as far as it goes, Ezekiel, because they come and they hear your words and then they rave about how well you spoke, but then they go out from your presence and they don't do the things that you say. They're hearers, but they're not doers. See, and what can happen when someone speaks well is that it can invoke an emotional response in the hearer, which then makes them vulnerable to listen to or adhere to the the words or the teaching of the person that's talking. And they can, with persuasive words. When Herod Agrippa was the king in Jerusalem in the days of the early church, he was a man that opposed the work of God. The Bible tells us that he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. He killed, the first of the apostles was murdered by Herod Agrippa. He then imprisoned Peter with the intent of doing the same thing to him after giving him a sham trial. He was a man who was against God and he wreaked havoc against the kingdom of God. And there came a a, a point in the history or the politics there in Jerusalem where there was 
something that had to be fixed. And so Herod says, well, I'll read it to you. It's Acts chapter 12, verses 21 and 22. And it says, upon a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne. And it says that he made an oration unto them. Now, I want you to consider for a minute. Here is a pagan king dressed in pomp, talking to spiritual people. He's talking to the Jews. He's in Jerusalem. And listen to the response as this pagan king gives an oration. Verse 22. It says, And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of a God and not of a man. So here is this pagan king who's wreaking havoc in the church, and yet he is able with enticing words to captivate an audience to a point where they are willing to concede that this is the voice of a God and not of a man. Now, if it can be done by a pagan king, it certainly can be done by someone who comes piously, speaks scripturally, and talks like they know what they're talking about concerning things spiritual. If a pagan king can deceive people with enticing words, how much easier for someone who appears to be innocent or that doesn't understand the full scope of what they're talking about. Now, Paul knew the danger that enticing words could bring upon a vulnerable group of people if those words were not wholesome, edifying, doctrinally sound words. When a person begins to put their trust in a man, when a person begins to look to a pastor or to a spiritual leader as their source or their connection to God, they're in big trouble. It's dangerous. What is the quote? That the best of men or the best man is a man at best, right? And and that's the problem is that whenever you're looking to a guru or to a leader or to a pastor, eventually you are going to be violated because they're not going to measure up to the thing that you were hoping they would. People are looking for an example. They want to see with their eyes what Christianity looks like in the real world. And so they'll look for someone who's a good example. But here's the problem. Take David. He was the greatest king that Israel ever had. For hundreds of years after his death, God pointed to David and said, he's the gold standard of what I'm looking for in a king. No one has measured up to the, to the standard that David set. And look what David did. What are we studying on Sunday mornings? He was the best. Jesus said, there has not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Of all of the prophets that were before him, there has not arisen a greater than John the Baptist, but yet... John the Baptist, his faith lapsed, didn't it? He sent some of his servants to go and ask Jesus and say, is this the man that we're looking for or do we look for another? Even the man whom Jesus said there hasn't arisen a greater, even his faith failed at a time. And here's the problem when you're following or looking to a man as your spiritual anchor is that eventually they will fail. Eventually, they're going to falter, they're going to fall, and it leaves people feeling hurt, feeling violated, feeling lied to, and in many instances, it offends their walk with Jesus. And you know whose fault it is? 
It's their fault. Because what Paul is warning the Colossian Christians, and you and me as well, is don't follow a man. No matter how well he speaks or no matter what he says, your faith is not in a man. Who is your faith in? What does he say in verse 6? He says this. He says, as you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in No man died for your sins. No man was willing to die for your sins. No man could pay the price of salvation, and no man is worthy of the place that Jesus has assumed in what he has done, his redemptive work within our lives. It's in Jesus alone. And so, therefore, don't put your faith in a man. Don't put your confidence or your hope or your anchor in some human instrument, even if they have the best intention of serving God faithfully. Paul would not allow people to put their faith and their trust in him because it's too fickle. You can't do it. Did you hear about what happened on the Taconic Parkway this afternoon up north of us just a ways? A couple of young boys were being cute and they took a rope. And standing on the side of the bridge, they were throwing this rope over the bridge and, you know, letting it fall on the cars as they would, would pass underneath, you know, and, and go their way. And, and getting laughs, and it was cute. Until they hit a pickup truck and the rope got caught in the rack on the top of it. And it, you know, caught the arm and it ripped the arm off of one of the young, the young men. And, and so, you know, they, they called the emergency crews and the truck didn't even know what happened. And they, you know, they followed the truck and eventually they pulled the truck over and the driver shot. And would you believe that the troopers wrote a ticket to the man driving the truck? Armed robbery. Now, do you see what I just did to you? I could have took an offering. And you would have given, see, because words have a way of doing something within us that can manipulate. And so you don't trust in a man. A good leader is going to lead you to Jesus. A good sermon is going to leave you at the end impressed with what he has done, not what the preacher or the teacher has said or done. It's Jesus, see. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and he says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The book of Acts chapter 17 verses 11 and 12 talk to us about the Bereans. After Paul left Thessalonica, he went to a town named Berea, and he preached the word unto them. And it says that the Bereans were more noble than they in Thessalonica because they searched the scriptures daily to see if the things which Paul declared to them were true. And it says, so 
grew the word of God and magnified in that place. Why? Because they weren't trusting in men. They were looking to the Lord. And that's what Paul is telling them to do. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. And then he says, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. What does it mean to be rooted in something? If a plant has its roots grounded in something, that means that it's drawing all of its life, all of its resources, its very survival is staked upon where its roots are planted. And he's telling us that we're to not have our roots in a man or our roots in a denomination or in a church or in a movement of God, but we're to have our roots in Jesus Christ himself. And then he says we're to be built up in Jesus Christ. That word built up means layer upon layer. We have these giant hickory trees in our backyard, and and I've been cutting them down. And I love it when you get a good one with no knots, and you can count the rings. And it's fun. You know, you you lose track because those hickories, you know, they, they have such tight rings. But sometimes 80, 90 rings, you know, in this thing is you can count from the outside to the inside. And you just imagine, like, what takes place over that time, the growth. And that's what it means when it says built up in him is this layer upon layer. Just hang in there, stay rooted in Jesus Christ and grow in him and you'll have spiritual health. Don't look to a man. Beware of men. He says, as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving, patiently endure and trust in Christ. Don't get sucked into a man cult following after a man. Is your anchor or your source? Well, he goes on. Enemy number two. Enemy number two is legalism. Religious observance. He says in verse 8, Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. After the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. He's speaking here of the legalist. Now, If you've been going with us as we've gone through Galatians and then through Philippians and now into Colossians, you're well-versed in who these legalizers are. In other places, Paul calls them the circumcision or the concision. And these were the men that would follow Paul from town to town, from city to city. And after he would leave, they would go in and they would tell the Christians, hey, listen. Paul said grace. Yeah, it's grace. That's good. Jesus died. The blood, it's all good. But you need to keep the law. You must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses if you want to be saved. It's not enough for you to just trust in grace through faith. That's cheap, they would say. And they would compel these people with their persuasive words that they should be circumcised and that they should make a covenant to become proselytes of Judaism in order that their Christianity might be confirmed and substantiated. And so these legalizers would come, and they came to Colossae, and it's who Paul is warning them about here. Listen to what he says. He says, beware lest any man spoil you. That's a great word picture right there, because, you know, when a king would conquer another land or another city, they would go in and they would take a spoil. They would take the goods, the things that were valuable, and and they would literally just absorb them into their possession or unto their account. And Paul is saying, beware lest any man take you as the spoil. 
You become disciples of them and disciples of their way. And in so doing, you are being robbed from your position in Christ. You're being spoiled. Beware lest any man spoil you. How? Through philosophy and vain deceit. The word philosophy, it's two words in the Greek. Philo, which is love, and sophie, which is wisdom. It's love to love wisdom. So, ooh, it's enticing. There's wisdom. Through philosophy and also vain deceit. Vain deceit means empty rhetoric or a pipe dream. Following something that may or, not, may or may not ever come to pass. Then he says, after the tradition of men. Tradition means to give up reason. To no longer have a reason behind why you are doing what you're doing. That's what tradition means. I read about a, 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 a young woman who, you know, she was you know, excited about uh, growing up and having her own home. And so every year she would, you know, get a turkey for Thanksgiving, but she would do an odd thing is that she would get the bird and she would just cut the top two inches off of the bird, just right off the, the backbone there, or the breastbone, you know, just cut it right off and then cook the turkey. Well, after a, a couple of years, her husband said, why, why do you do that? And she said, well, my mother always did it. You know, it's just... I guess it's just tradition. I don't really know why she did it, but she always did it, and I always do it. I just thought it's just what we do. And so he said, well, why? And so she said, I don't know. I'll ask her. And so, you know, the young woman, she calls her mother, and she says, hey, Mom, why did you always cut the top two inches off of the bird before putting it in the oven? She said, oh, because, it, you know, the oven that we had was so small, it never fit, you know. And so we had to, and, and see, do you see what happens? Is that there's no longer a reason anymore. It's just, oh, we just cut the top of the bird off. That's just what we do. It doesn't, it's, it, we don't have to anymore, but we just do. You know, that's tradition. It's without reason. And then he says, and also after the rudiments of the world. The rudiments is another word for elements. And what it means is the base principles of worldly reasoning. The rudiments of the world. Now, The legalist would say grace isn't enough. Grace isn't enough. And if you think about it, grace makes no sense, does it? I mean, think about it. Why would God love me? Who who am I? Who are you that, that God would take interest in our lives? Who are we that God would be willing to make himself a man, live amongst us in this corrupted world, and then die in our place. Who are we that God would, would be willing then to take up his residency and live inside of us? And then be willing to strive with us in all of our stubbornness and promise to bring us to a place of perfection. Why would God do that? It doesn't make any sense. I think of Jesus when he was talking there with Nicodemus on the streets of Jerusalem at night. Because Nicodemus was afraid to come to him during the day. And Jesus said that you must be born again if you want to see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus was confused. He didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. And so Jesus clarified for him. You know what he said? He said, Nick, the wind blows where it listeth. Or the wind blows where it wants. And you don't know where it's coming from. And you don't know where it's going. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said, how can these things be? (laughs) In other words, listen, 
It doesn't make sense. You're never going to be able to figure out grace. You're never going to be able to figure out why God has an interest in your life or, or what, what reason he has to, to endure and to strive with you and to bring you to... It's never going to make sense. It didn't make sense to Nicodemus, and it doesn't make sense to us, and it didn't make sense to the legalizers in Paul's day. So what they did is they figured it out. And what they did is they figured out exactly why God would take interest in a person's life. They had a very quid pro quo approach to figuring out God. Well, we keep the rituals, we keep the traditions, we go through the Sabbath days and the laws, we do the sacraments, we fast when we're supposed to fast, we eat when we're supposed to eat, and we give when we're supposed to give, and in return, we expect the blessing, the favor, and the prosperity and protection that God promises to provide. It's very sensical. We do our part, he does his part. God helps those who help themselves, everybody knows these things, these are the rudiments of how things work. And the people would say, yeah, you know, that makes a lot of sense. You know, nothing's free, is it? You, you know, if you, want, if you want to eat, you got to work. You know, there, there's something there. And so, so these people had an audience, but there was one problem. Notice what it says there at the end of the verse. It says that this is not after Christ. That this is not grace. Vain philosophies, traditions of men, rudiments of the world. It's not after Christ. Concerning Christ, he says in verse 9, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him. In him. Now, why would someone join a religion? Because they want to get close to God, right? Why would someone go through a religious ritual in an endeavor to try to please God? Well, he's telling us that the place that God is found is in the person of Christ. In Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And he says that if you are in Christ, if you're participants of the mystery of grace and what God has purchased by putting his son on the cross and your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, then that means that you are complete in him. Your position, your standing, your account, your estimation in God's sight is perfect. It can't get any better than it is. You are complete in him. You don't need the traditions of men. You don't need to join yourself to legal traditions and rituals and different things. The more spiritual a man becomes, the less religious he becomes because he realizes that the work has been completed in the person of Jesus Christ. You're complete in Christ, Paul would say. He is, he goes on to say, the head of all principality and power. Now, he's speaking of the systems and the enforcement of the religious codes. The principalities and powers that Jesus is the head of are the religious codes and structures that were contained in the ordinances of the law, the law of Moses. And here's what he's saying, is that Jesus is the head over those things. Remember when you were in school and you would break the rules and the principal would come to you? And what did he always say? At least to me, he would say, are you above the rules? That's what they would say. You ever have anybody say that to you? It's very condescending when someone says that to you. Are you above the rules? And, and what they're doing is they're putting you back in your place. They're saying, no, no, no. What's good for the geese is good for the gander. You have to follow the rules. Here's what this is saying, is that Jesus, he is above the rules. 
He's the head of all principality and power. All of those codes and the system of their enforcement is designed by and run by him, and he is over it. Well, the legalist would argue and say, no, 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 you can't, Paul, we see what you're trying to do, and you can't do that. Paul, you cannot circumvent circumcision. This is something that goes way back to Abraham, and God said that this is going to be a perpetual covenant forever. Even Moses, who was the lawgiver, he, if anyone is over the law, it would be Moses. Even Moses, his children were almost killed by God, or I'm sorry, he was almost killed by God because he didn't circumcise his children. You can't get around this circumcision, Paul. We've got you nailed. Well, here's Paul's answer to circumcision, verse 11. Look what he says to the Christian, to you and I concerning this thing that the legalist said we needed to do. He said, in whom also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You are circumcised. Why? How? How could I be circumcised? Paul, what do you mean? Here's what it is. Is that you are in Christ. This is what he's saying. You're in Christ. Christ was circumcised. Therefore, if you are in Christ and you are dead to the former life, the body of the sins of the flesh, you are now one with him. And so therefore you are circumcised in the circumcision of Christ. You are placed in him and therefore that ritual is completed on your behalf because you're complete in him. You are circumcised with the circumcision of Christ in him. Not only are you circumcised with him, but he goes on to say that through baptism, every other thing that Jesus accomplished is also laid to your account and to mine. Look at verse 12. It says, buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. In other words, when you were baptized, what happens is that you were spiritually crucified with Christ. Your old life, your identity on earth, your existence after the person of Adam was buried in the ground. It no longer exists. And that when you came up out of the waters of baptism, you were symbolically, spiritually placed in, risen in Christ Jesus. And so now, because you are risen with Christ, through faith in the operation of God, the operation is the energy or the work of God. Meaning that no longer is it your energy or your work, but it's all of his work and what he's accomplished and you are now the beneficiary of it because you are raised with Christ as he has risen from the dead. And the result of that is that not only are you circumcised with the circumcision made without hands and every other thing that was required of you under the law is fulfilled in you because you are in him, but also, and this is the clincher here in verse 13, he says this, and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, that is, made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Every sin that was laid to your account is blotted out. It is put away. It is completely forgiven. 
You say, well, wait a minute, how? How is that possible? Because, I mean, maybe you could make a case for a cleansing wherein, you know, all of my past sins are put away, but, but what about my present sinful state? And what about the sins that I haven't yet committed that I know I'm going to commit because of the weakness of my flesh? What about those sins? Is that included too when it says having forgiven you all trespasses? Yes. Listen, look at verse 14. Why? How? He says, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us. And it says he took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. The ordinances that it speaks of there in verse 14, it speaks of the law. And here's what it is. It's the code of enforcement that was governed by the principalities and the powers over whom Christ is head. I remember when I was in Catholic school as a young man, St. John the Evangelist in Spencerport, New York. And Steve Shaka was the principal. He was the enforcer. And there was a code. There was a law. The law was no gel in your hair, men. No moose in those days, you know. No makeup for the ladies. They couldn't do the curling iron thing where they poofed up the bangs, you know. And Steve Shaka would do this. The hallway was about eight feet wide, and the boys would single file down the one side, and the girls would single file down the other. The boys with their light blue short-sleeved collared shirt with the navy blue pants, and the girls with the stockings and the plaid jumper, and, and everybody would walk, you know, in straight form, eyes straight in front, and they would walk down, and Steve Shaka would stand right between the doors to the two bathrooms. And he would watch as each person went. The principal would be enforcing the code. And and if someone tried to sneak a little bit of style into their do, or if a girl tried to, you know, put on a little light mascara to paint the barn, so to speak, you know, he would stand there, and and I'm telling you, literally, he would watch, he would watch, and then he would just shove the guy right into the, the boys' room, wash it out, and, he would, and then the girl, wash it out. And, and he would do this every morning, Steve Shock, when he had these big, thick glasses and this real bad comb over, you know. And, and, and he was Moses. I mean, he was the principality. Now, what if, what if one morning I came in, and there I am, and not only do I have gel in my hair, but I've put it up in a spiked mohawk. And I have a, a brand new lip ring you know, and a a tattoo, you know, that goes right down the center and, you know, uh, uh, spikes in the tops of my ears. And I'm wearing not the light blue shirt and the navy blue pants, but a big black gothic overcoat. And I'm walking down the aisle and Steve Shaco, we make eye contact and we're coming. And here he is and he's gearing up. He's got like his football stance because he's not just going to, you know, gently nudge me and he's going to take me in there, you know, and and show me a thing. But, But standing behind me, there is someone who Steve Shaco doesn't recognize. And there we are, we're walking down and I'm confidently walking through, making my way, and he's about to make his move. And then standing in front of me and stepping between me and Steve Shaco is the Pope. And the Pope takes off his hat and he exposes gel in his hair. And he has a lip ring and a spike and tattoos and, and he's wearing a black gothic overcoat. And, and, over, and he says absolved because he's over the principle see and and this is what it's saying that jesus did here 
This is what Jesus did. It says that he blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. It was contrary to us. We couldn't keep it. It was an offense to our nature. Our nature, the whole purpose of the law was to show us that we were bent and crooked and sinful. And it says he took it out of the way and he nailed it to his cross. And then it says that he spoiled principalities and powers. Here's what that means. Remember that word spoiled, taking a spoil in a battle? Here's what happened. Here's what Jesus did. Jesus stepped into this world and he found each one of us and we were bound under the principalities and the powers of the law. And Jesus took a spoil. He grabbed you and I out from the grasp of the law, the commandments that condemned us and that we couldn't keep. And he placed us in himself. And he is ascended victoriously over it. Look what it says. It says, having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly. That means he embarrassed them. Can you picture Steve Shaco? <laughs> in the hallway, I would love to have seen that happen, you know, if, if I could somehow, you know. But can you imagine? He embarrassed Jesus. He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. In other words, he has completely removed you and I from the curse of the law. We are not under the law. Therefore, he says, let no man judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Every one of those rituals that was there in the Old Testament, every one of those things, those covenants, those sacrifices, the circumcision, all that they had to do, all of those things were a shadow of something else that had substance. What is a shadow? It's just a reflection of something else that's real. And he says all of those things were just a shadow. You can't even make out what something really is by looking at its shadow. And so the implication is this, is that not only are you and I complete in Christ, but everything that those shadows represented is completed on our behalf because we're in Christ. And so Paul says, listen, this obstacle of legalism, it's going to trip you up. The problem with legalism is this, and this is Paul's contention, his competition, is that when you're under the law or when you're seeking to please God through religious rituals, you have no rest because you're never quite good enough. There's always something else that you're supposed to be doing. There's one more hurdle that you have to clear. There's one more hoop that you have to jump through. You can never really be accepted by God. You can never really just come into his presence and pray, man, I haven't read my Bible in a week. I can't expect God to provide for me this week. It's legalism. Well, I've got to do a couple things before I can expect God to really come through for me in this. No, you're complete in Jesus Christ. There's no rest in legalism. There's also no fellowship. There's no comfort of love. There's no being knit together. Because here's why. Because when you're under legalism, you look at everybody else through the lens of the law. What are they doing? Are they measuring up? Are you praying? Are you reading? Are you fasting as much as I'm fasting? And all of a sudden, a spiritual hierarchy begins to develop. 
In Luke chapter 18, Jesus spoke, and he says that he spake this parable unto certain men which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. And that's what legalism does. You cannot have a loving relationship with another human being when you're under the bond of legalism because everything is measured about, hey, are you worthy? Do you measure up? Are you there? There's no rest. Paul is saying, beware. You are complete. You are whole. You are forgiven. Well, we are out of time, and we have not talked about the Gnostics or the ascetics and anything else. You know, well, let's, let's cruise. Verse 18. Enemy number three. He says, let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. The third enemy that the Apostle Paul brings to their attention is the enemy of asceticism or of an ascended appearance. Now, the group of people that Paul was dealing with in his day were known as the Gnostics. And what the Gnostics were was a blend of Christian morality and Eastern mysticism. They tried to blend the morale, the morals of Jesus Christ, but with the practices of the mystics. And it was the pursuit of a moral ascent through meditation and self-denial and an interaction with the spirit realm. And some of the Gnostics believed that Jesus was just an ascended, uh, you know, a man that had made it into an ascent of wisdom, that he had arrived. He was an enlightened one, an enlightened human. Others believed that Jesus was just a teacher, but that he didn't come in the flesh, that he was a spirit, and that when he walked, he left no footprints, that he was just an apparition or an angelic being. And and that was the position of the Gnostics. But in either case, the Gnostics did not believe that Jesus was divine, but rather that he was just an angelic being in some sense. Now, the, the problem with the Gnostics is that once a person in Paul's day embraced Gnosticism, they were stepping outside of the boundaries of salvation. He says there, let no man beguile you of your reward. And the word there, beguile you of reward, means defraud you of salvation. Because as soon as you make Jesus less than God, you are, in a sense, defrauding yourself of your salvation. You are becoming uh, something other than Christians. Now, Gnosticism is not a big problem today in the church. However, the practice of the Gnostics is a problem in the church today, and that is this. This is what the the Gnostics did, is that they diminished the person of Christ, and they elevated the potential of man. So, in other words, they made Jesus less, and they made the potential for man to be more. Now, it certainly includes Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and those people that, you know, make Jesus less than God. But in a more subtle sense, it speaks of people that have a hyper-spirituality. The marks of someone who falls under the category that Paul is speaking of here is that they, you know, first of all, it says um, that, that he says, let no man beguile you of reward in a voluntary humility. That is, the nature, the changed nature that they have is not real 
and an internal work of the Spirit of God. Rather, it's something that's contrived and put on and masqueraded so that they'll appear to be more spiritual than they really are. Second of all, he says they intrude into those things which they have not seen. And that is that they always place an emphasis upon spiritual things. It's always angels and demons and spirits and, you know, everything in the spirit realm. And there's just this assentedness to them. They're, They're beyond you in spiritual matters. You'll get there someday, but you're not there yet. And Paul says, no, that's not what's happened. He has not seen those things, but rather he's vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Uh, And and that's it. And then he says that they don't hold the head from which the whole body by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increases with the increase of God. And somebody that is is like this, what Paul is describing, the the hyper-spiritual person that's always putting on a spiritual aura, is eventually they separate themselves from the body. They're too spiritual to be in a church. They don't belong in a church. They're bigger than the church. They hear directly from God, and the church is full of immature people, and so they don't need God anymore because they've grown beyond it. The problem is the church is the platform where growth takes place in the Christian's life. That's what he means when he says, from which the whole body by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increases with the increase of God. So somebody who it comes into this place of asceticism or you know, asceticism, where they're, they're better, they've ascended, they're more spiritual than everybody else. They diminish Christ because when you're in their presence, you don't feel like you quite measure up. You're not complete. I, I knew a man like this once. Uh, his name was Dave Weber, and he had this zeal about him. He had this fire in his eyes, and everything was a sign. Everything was a wonder. Everything was hyper-spiritual, you know. And, 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 you know, you would get around him, and you would think, wow, you know, this guy really has it. He understands. This guy, he's got a connection to God that I wish I had. And that was the problem, is that he diminished Christ. I wasn't complete in Christ. I needed what he had. I needed to fast more. I needed to be more spiritual. I needed to be more open. I needed to be more on the lookout. It was never quite enough. He also elevated the potential of what man could be. Paul says he's vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. He isn't those things that he's purporting to be. He's pretending to be, but he isn't. It's not real within his life. And that's the problem um, with somebody who's into this asceticism thing. And so Paul says, be on the lookout for it because it will rob you. It will beguile you of your reward. And then he sums it up in verse 20. He says, wherefore, if you be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why as though living in the world are you subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, which are all to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom, In will worship, that means worship prescribed in self-will. I'll worship the way I feel like I want to worship. And in humility, that's false humility. And the neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. That is, that it doesn't really profit you at all. 
So what is it that Paul was in competition for, for the Colossian Christians? He wanted two things, well, three things for them, two in our summation. He wanted them to be completely free. He wanted them to understand that they didn't have to try to earn God's favor. That everything was done on their behalf and they were complete. They didn't need religious works. They didn't need to put themselves under, under you know, a, a bondage of having to perform certain things or be at certain services or perform certain things for the Lord. Is that they were completely and totally complete in Christ. He didn't want them to feel like that they weren't mature or that God would bless them once they reached a certain depth of spirituality. But rather, his desire for them is that they would have the full assurance that Jesus Christ was in them and that therefore they were entitled to all of the riches associated with Christ living in them. And the result of that is this. And listen, because these are the riches. God is pleased with you. He's pleased with you. Not because of anything you have done, but because of what he has done. Not by works of righteousness that we have done, but by his grace, he has saved us. And so he's pleased with us on Christ's behalf because we are in Christ. The question isn't, what are you doing for Christ? The question is, are you in Christ? And if you're in Christ, God is pleased. And here's part two of that. And here's the good news. Listen, because you're in Christ, it means Everything that Jesus Christ designed you to be when you're done, when you're finished, he is going to do. He is going to bring you to the place of perfection. That is, like we read in Jeremiah 29, I know the thoughts that I think towards you. I know the plans that I have towards you, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to bring you to an expected end. He's going to finish the work. It's garden season, and my wife has me in the garden continually. And, you know, she's always got different seeds. She loves seeds, and I know why she loves seeds, because the, the beautiful thing about a seed is that you just put the seed in the dirt, and then you water it and feed it, and it will become what it was designed to be. The organism does not have to put forth effort to become what God naturally designed it to be. It will happen by itself. And the same thing is true for you and for me. We don't have to strive to try to be something, to try to be more, to try to grow more, to push ourselves into this place of spiritual development or maturity. All you have to do is be rooted in Christ, fixed upon Him, built up in Him, layer upon layer, patiently enduring and growing. And He's going to finish the work that He began in you. And so Paul's desire for the Colossians is that they would stay close to Jesus and that they wouldn't be ripped off by persuasive men, by religious rituals, or by ascended appearances, trying to be something that they're not, but that they would have perfect rest in their souls and that that would result in loving fellowship with each other as they grew together and experienced Jesus Christ. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for this glorious treasure that we have, that we stand complete in Jesus Christ, that no man can pluck us out of your hand, 
But if we just stay rooted and grounded and built up in you, if we keep our eyes focused on the lover of our soul, and as we would just grow in you, in the grace and in the knowledge of you, that we would experience the fullness of what you have ordained for each one of our lives. How I pray, Father, that we would bear the reflection of this kind of people. That Jesus Christ would be in us. That we would acknowledge and believe it. And that we'd grow in that truth. And that you would be exalted and magnified by the fruit that comes out of our lives as we just yield ourselves to you. And so have your way within us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together. Yeah.